One of the key reasons, of course, why there is so much debate over the need for vaccines and the need for vaccines now is that not only is it going to save lives, but we can't really begin to reopen businesses, schools, all the normal activity that we have here until there is a comfort level on the part of the public to actually start to engage in commerce again. This week, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce is holding a Canada 360 summit to look at the whole question of the recovery, how it's going to go, when it's going to start. The recovery will, of course, by definition, be business-led, but in a sense, consumer-driven all that pent-up demand. But the true test of any kind of recovery will be, of course, jobs. Do people have jobs to go back to? Do they have decent work at a decent rate? So all of these questions we are now going to discuss with the Honourable Perrin Beattie. He is honourable because he served for a very long time in the Canadian uh, Parliament. He is today the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. And and can can I call you Perrin and you'll call me Pamela because we've I known sh- each other I for sure 500 so. years. We're old friends going back many, many, <laughs> many years. Won't say how many. No, we won't say how many. Okay, that's great. So tell me a little bit about the thinking behind this. When you say business-led recovery, of course, businesses have to open, de- decisions have to be made by companies. What are you seeing in your mind? Well, the important thing is, at the present time, we're on a subsidies-based economy. Uh, Governments have mandated the closures of whole sectors of the economy. They've told Canadians to stay home, not to go out of their their houses. And um, as a result, then, governments are writing checks. This is the first recession in the history of Canada where savings rates have actually gone up. There's been that much money pushed out by the by the federal it government. Is, it is unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we can't continue that way. We've got to transition from a subsidies based economy to one in which both families and and businesses are self sustaining again. And to do that, it means you have to have a business led recovery. That means that businesses have to be allowed to reopen. They have to be able to get customers back. They have to be able to hire their employees back again, and they have to become self sustaining. There's a lot of concern, as you can see, even in the last week where different provinces were talking about reopening bits and parts of their respective um, economies of businesses saying, hold it here. We've seen this before. Letting my restaurant open to a 25% capacity is not worth it because you might change your mind again in another two weeks. We're, we're still living with huge uncertainty. And this is a major problem. You cite restaurants as an example. Put yourself in the position of a small restaurateur who has gone, he's ordered all sorts of, of food supplies and it's then been instructed he has to close can't use that food, has to either yeah. give it away or throw it away, uh, close the place down. It's now being told that they can reopen it, but for how long? Yeah. Is it going to be shut again? And, and so you have this yo-yo effect that is devastating for so many small businesses across the country. One estimate is that the average small business has accumulated about $150,000 worth of debt over the course of the last year as a result of this. And that's why qualitatively, the current wave that we're in is different from the first one. And mm-hmm. that's the capacity of businesses to be able to manage and to accumulate any more debt has just disappeared. 
Yeah, a lot of people were just holding on the first time through. That's absolutely right. Now it's now it genuinely is life and death in terms of their businesses and that ability to come back. And and that's that's the big challenge. And it is for society as well. The, the problem has been, Pamela, for the last almost a year now, we've been reacting to the disease rather than right. managing it. Uh, and our response exactly. has been essentially shut down and subsidized as opposed to how can we we deal with it? Um, you've spent time in New York uh, as yep. consul general there. You, you're well aware of what happened in the United States after 9-11, where uh, there was an unseen killer. And yep. uh, as a result, then governments felt they had to shut everything down. But they finally concluded that it was it wasn't sustainable either socially or economically to simply keep things closed and that the threat of terrorism wasn't going to go away. They're going to have to live with it, but they're going to have to manage it. Exactly. And, and, and they did it. They did it by risk management, by recognizing the fact that there's no such system as zero risk. But what you can do is you can take your resources and target them at the areas of highest risk, first of all. Secondly, it should be based on intelligence, on data. Uh, you need to know where is there where is there a threat? How can you head that off? Uh, how can you mitigate the potential damage that gets done? And then third, you have to focus on on resiliency. Um, our governments have known since 9-11 that, that terrorism wasn't going to end, but that we simply couldn't afford to go back into a situation where we shut everything down again and, in essence, imposed a self-imposed embargo on North America. Um, as a result, then, we've tried to build resiliency into our systems to say, if there's another incident, we'll still be able to function. We'll bring it back up as rapidly as we can. Well, these are the principles that we should have been following throughout the pandemic. We should have been targeting our resources at the areas of highest risk. And we know what those are. Long-term care facilities, meatpacking right. plants, uh, uh, accommodation for um, for um, uh, migrant farm workers and so on, where we've seen these outbreaks, people with uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, that's the first thing. Put your resources into where they need it. Two, we need much better data than we've had. Right. Um, Decisions are being made often because governments, uh, and you and I both know it because of uh, of our involvement in politics, when there's a crisis, the pressure mounts on politicians to be seen to be doing something. Mm -hmm. The one thing you can't do is nothing. And so governments often do things that may be perverse, uh, that have no foundation in fact at all, that may not solve the problem except they solve the political problem of being seen to act. So you look at the restrictions on restaurants um, and Super Bowl parties uh, most right. recently. Exactly. Uh, instead of having people in facilities where there's personal protective equipment, where there are restrictions in terms of social distancing, people were gathering in basements, in mm-hmm. crowds, without masks. Uh, ask yourself which one is more is more dangerous and what the data, if you had it, would, would show. That's the thing that has troubled me from the beginning. I mean, it's a miracle that we have uh, the vaccines invented in in at the rate that they were done. I mean, that's that's a miracle. The procurement of them and the delivery of them is quite another matter. And we don't seem to be doing that well. Is your view, and I want to come back to testing because that's my hobby horse on this, why, why we're not doing more. Do you believe we have to wait for the vaccines to be delivered so that we 
reach herd immunity or whatever you want to call it before we're going to see a true reopen? Or do you think we've got to proceed regardless? To get to the the new normal, in quotation marks, whatever that is, we're going to have to reach herd immunity. And that's going to require uh, vaccines to do that. And that means that, and that's at the same time as we're seeing new variants that are far more mm-hmm. virulent and dangerous than uh, than what we were used to this past year. This means that we are literally in a race against time and a race against death to uh, uh, be able to, to get those vaccines in place in the interim. We have to be looking at at how do we manage this? And and again, we have to move away from simply being reactive to actively managing it. Now, um, there is no silver bullet. Even the vaccine isn't a silver bullet because it's it's coverage is 100 percent. Yeah. But um, so you have personal protective equipment. You have physical distancing. You have testing and tracing. You have rapid testing. You have the COVID app. Uh, there are whole. You have washing hands and other and other yeah. processes. We may we may follow. Um, no no one of those in itself uh, is guaranteed to prevent the spread of of COVID, particularly of these new, much more dangerous strains. But uh, but experts talk about the so-called Swiss cheese approach. Now, any piece of Swiss cheese with holes in it, you can hold it up, see the, the light through it. But you put layer upon layer upon layer of the Swiss cheese on top of each other, and eventually you, you block off that transmission of light. Exactly. Um, yeah. In this, this interim period, we need to be using every single tool that we can to, uh, to reduce the incidence of COVID. And we can take advantage of that then to, 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 with care, reopen our economy, allow people to have more of their ordinary lives back, even if we are, are not fully back to normal, but to have something more normal than we have. And we can begin to mitigate some of the damage that's being done by lockdowns, the uh, problems with, uh, with uh, mental health, Problems mm-hmm. with family violence, problems with drug abuse, uh, problems with kids missing school. Uh, you can go down through the list. If we take a holistic approach to how do we 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 bring in policy in this in this pandemic, you have to look at the effects of the policies that you pursue and not just of the disease itself. I want to come back to this question of testing. It's troubled me right from the beginning because when we've seen the case of, for example, the big box stores being allowed to open, uh, but the mom and pop shop um, being closed, that's one side of the issue. The other side is with the big box. If you're testing all the employees when they go in every morning, or it could be the Senate of Canada for that matter, it doesn't really, you know, just test people who are going to work. If they're fine, they go in. If they're not, they don't. And they get tested again the next day. I mean, the NHL can do it. Other people can do it. Why can't we transfer some of this to that big box phenomenon? But the second point is this wasn't really that big an issue in small, small businesses where only one or two people were in the shop at a time anyway, but we shut them right down. Well, it it doesn't make sense. It it doesn't make sense. So on the issue of of, of smaller facilities. We've got to ask ourselves, does it make more sense to take hundreds of people and funnel them into a big box store as opposed to allowing two or three people into a small store with proper 
social distancing and proper PE, PPEs. Um, again, it's an example of the perversity of some of the things that yeah. we're doing, which, which seems to contradict what what a data-based approach would uh, suggest. Then on the issue of testing itself, Pam, the, the issue there isn't could we be doing it, but why haven't we been doing it? Yes. Um, Canada was slow in terms of approving rapid tests. Other countries approved them and implemented them first. Now we have literally millions and millions of rapid test kits sitting in warehouses unused. And uh, uh, the the best performance of any of the provinces is less than 15%, I believe, in terms of use of of those kits. But ask yourself one simple question. Um, If you are a business and you start using the kits, how does this change government policy? Will they allow you to reopen? This has been the frustration that airports and, and exactly. uh, airlines yep. have had. Uh, they've brought in all sorts of testing, but the question is, well, how does this affect policy decisions? Um, do you know of any jurisdiction in Canada that has a clear uh, policy that you can vote, hold in your hand that says this is how how rapid testing will be administered and this is the consequence of doing it. So um, I believe this is an area where business is going to, where we simply can't wait for governments anymore to get their act in here, where we've just got to go ahead by ourselves, uh, develop our own protocols, put them in place and hope that, that government will uh, catch up. And, and doesn't that, stop it from happening. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's the that's the challenge. Um, to give you an example of where it could be very helpful, um, even if the government were to lift all restrictions on hotels and on restaurants today, the question is: Would you feel comfortable going back uh-huh. into a restaurant or into a hotel, uh, or would you feel more comfortable if you heard that every day employees were taking a rapid test and uh, were certified as having passed the the test? So public confidence and employee confidence, knowing that the people you're working with um, have been following strict protocols and have been tested as well, can be boosted by this. And then finally, the quality of the tests themselves in terms of their accuracy, their speed, right. and the, 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 and in terms of being less intrusive is improving dramatically as well. We need to be using this. I was staying in a hotel last week and talked to a young woman at a at a coffee shop where they're trying to provide at least that um, service. It's very, very difficult. It's still just a question of taking people's temperatures when they go in. And here's this woman saying, test me, please test me. And I'm saying, I wish they would test you because then I'd feel a lot better than if they were just taking your temperature. Everybody seems to be there except those that are leading us and making the decision. Exactly. And, and it's it's a mystery. Um, and, and this has been the challenge throughout all of this. It has been the lack of a strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a national COVID strategy. And what we have is a crazy quilt of provincial and municipal regulation mm-hmm. across the country. Imagine if you are running a, a national business with uh, stores in communities across Canada and that you want to have one standard of training for your employees, one set of, of uh, PPEs and of, uh, of other equipment that you would put in place, standard protocols, and you find that it varies from municipality to municipality. <laughs> Um, it, it just makes it extremely difficult. Uh, I think everybody recognizes that conditions on the ground vary. 
and right. uh, that, that incidence of the disease varies and economic and social circumstances vary. So you have to have flexibility. But what we have today is incoherence. Yeah. And we are paying a significant price for that. So when we come back to this issue of um, business-led recovery, which you're talking about here in terms of at some point, businesses just are going to have to do this and say, we've bought the rapid tests, we're testing our employees, we're letting people in, we're going to make sure that everybody has a mask on, but we're just going to go ahead with it and and almost challenge uh, the government to do it. The other side of it is um, the, the, the spending. Everyone talks, all the economists are talking about all this pent-up demand. Yes, we have been uh, boosting savings accounts by by handing out money to people, many in need, many in less need. Um, and and But I don't know how this pent-up recovery, I'm not going to go back and stay in more hotel rooms that I didn't stay in this year. I can't cram. I can't take more flights this year because I didn't take flights last year or eat in more restaurants. It, I will want to go back. I will want to shop and consume, but I can't make up for it. That's absolutely right. Let me come back to this question in, in, in a second, but but just add one more thing on the previous yeah. one. We are going to have exactly the same issue when it comes to vaccine rollout and administration right. as well. No, it's um, true. Either either we have a, a, a coherent plan, one which you know, if we hit our targets for the first quarter of this year for the number of vaccines delivered to Canada, the Americans will administer that many shots in three days. Exactly. Uh, and so we, we desperately need to, to up our game in this. And that means then that business is going to have to get engaged directly. Um, some obvious ways, pharmacies uh, mm-hmm. delivering um, delivering the vaccine with government authorization. Obviously, they can't do it without that. But it may very well mean um, businesses also helping in cold storage, businesses helping in terms of supply chain logistics, businesses helping in terms of, of establishing community clinics and the like and um, business will have to will have to push the pace on this uh, if governments are are slow but obviously always staying within the law but looking at ways in which they can solve problems if governments aren't leading on it now let me come back to the question yep. you actually asked they um, were very long questions so you know that's okay <laughs> it, 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 it's it's an important one the, the simple fact is that that uh our economy is not going to bounce back evenly. Uh, usually in a recession, it's those sectors that go in first that are the first to come back out. In this one, it's the sector that went in first that's going to be last to come back out. Travel, tourism, hospitality, restaurants, uh, hotels, and so on. And, uh, you know, they felt it first, the airlines, they, they felt it first and they're going to be the slowest in many ways coming back, which means we're going to need to have tailored assistance as opposed to the across the board type that helps to to respond to the specific needs of a, of a particular sector. We'll find other sectors, which some of them have done exceptionally well. Uh, digital technologies. Of course, yeah. Um, would be, that's an example of that. Uh, and and uh, that's great. Thank heaven. And uh, we, will, we will see... 
a slingshot effect in some areas as we come out of the restrictions. Um, it, we saw this last summer when when the government started to to remove restrictions, that the economy was being artificially depressed. So it wasn't like a normal recession. It was the economy had been put into a medically induced coma. Yes. We're in the same situation today. When we take away those restrictions, there will be an explosion of activity in, in many sectors, but there will be others that will be lagging, which is why people refer to it, economy, economists refer to it as a K-shaped recovery with mm-hmm. one arm going up, the other one going down. And uh, it's going to require then that, that we have nuanced policies. We can't afford to simply spill money. You know, when you're up to $1.3 trillion of, of debt, uh, it's going to be critical for us to be very judicious in, in what we do. And as we look at the federal budget coming up, There's one very clear message for the government, and that's that if a program was unaffordable at this time last year, it's most surely unaffordable now with this with the debt load that we've accumulated in the interim. We need to be very focused on recovery and and on growth in our economy. So what does that mean in terms of um, specific policies that we might want to see? There's, I mean, you've seen the government signal maybe more help for daycare and those kinds of issues so women can go back to work because they seem to still be the predominant caregiver, et cetera. Uh, or are you talking about something more grandiose? There are economists out there that are telling us the first possible time we could ever even contemplate bouncing the books if nothing else bad happens is 2061. I mean, this is a frightening statistic. It is. And, you know, even before that, of course, the government had no plan to balance the books. They had right. a projection saying <laughs> the year that I turned 90, that uh, <laughs> that the uh, that the books would automatically balance themselves if there were no recession in the interim. Well, right. we've had that recession and there will be more recessions. Or and more so, epidemics. And more. Absolutely. Yeah. And so. Uh, we're going to have to have a strategy to get our fiscal house in order. Key to, to promoting growth is going to be investment. Um, there is money out there in the private sector to be invested, but it's going to go to those jurisdictions that are managing their economy well and that have a, a strategy. Um, we have spent more per capita than any other country in the uh, in the the B seven, I believe, even in the G seven, I believe, even in the G twenty, unless I'm mistaken. Um, and uh, what business is going to be looking for now is, well, do you have a strategy right. to deal with this and to restore private sector led growth? So, what what I certainly would be looking for in the budget is what is that strategy? What will be the foundations for it? And the other point is, we've been doing everything sequentially. Well, what we'll do is we'll lock things down, then we'll get infection rates down, and we'll subsidize in the meantime, then we'll reopen, and then we'll look at whether or not we can reduce subsidies, then we'll look at if there are other measures. We can't be looking at a um, at a uh, reopening plan that is sequential. We, yeah, we need that's to be a really good point, Perrin. A really good point. Foundation yeah. right now, yeah. and people know what it need to know what it is. Pam, we are losing the summer tourist season mm-hmm. um, because if you were if you were looking to bring a charter to Canada, you'd want to know that there was a hotel or an event or restaurants yep. to bring people there. Um, in the United States, Anthony Fauci is saying that they are going to be able to to be significantly advanced on on um, 
vaccines by Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, compare the tourist season this summer in Washington State with with British Columbia. Yeah, it is going to be going to be open, and one yeah. that 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 may not be. Um, we need to to dramatically up our game. The Americans now are looking at administering. This past week, they were they were administering two million shots a day. Okay, Brits are doing better than that per capita, and what this means is that our trading competitors are going to be able to reopen their economies before we are, and they're going to be laser focused on how they increase their global market share and attracting all that investment dollar that's sitting there waiting to be invested. Exactly, it's going to go somewhere else. And even if you were a Canadian investor. Exactly. You'd be saying, where do I put my money? Where will I get a return? Do I put it in Canada or do I put it somewhere else? So this is why the budget will be critical in terms of the signals that it sends that that we have a strategy and it's one that's going to work. A couple of more questions on on that side about attracting the investment or saving some of the bigger industries. Are you looking for that? Are you looking for a signal? And I'm not sure what it would be given the kind of the mindset, as you say, this sequential, uh, delayed, slow response to things. What would be a signal to people, which is, yes, we've kind of, we really have screwed up this vaccine, you know, vaccination acquisition program. We're, we're going to be behind our other G7 competitors, but here's one reason that you should still consider us. Anything there, anything that can be said or done? Well, a, a very good starting point would be, which will cost the government nothing, would be a signal that the government is going to put a cent stand still on new regulation. Yeah. Um, you know, while we're well, business is fighting to try to, to try to survive uh, during the pandemic. Uh, last year, uh, the government did slow down uh, regulation, but we're seeing it starting back up again, often on on things that are relatively trivial which simply put a burden on business and prevent it from being able to focus on the main event here. Uh, it would cost nothing for the government to stay with unnecessary regulation. We're going to postpone it. And well, we, we, we saw will, that in my part of the world. I mean, they went ahead with the, the carbon tax on farmers who were caught having to dry their grain because of bad weather when everybody was broke. I mean, that could have been delayed for six months. Well, on, on the taxation uh, sector, uh, perhaps even a, a better example would be uh, the alcohol tax on, mm-hmm. on alcoholic drinks. Parliament, much to its its shame, voted an automatic escalator where mm-hmm. it doesn't have to come back to Parliament. You know, this was the, the whole cause of, of parliamentary control over the executive came yeah. over, over control of spending. Um, Parliament ceded its responsibility to government and automatically each year the tax on alcohol is going up. Well, guess who's getting hit by that? Uh, Canada's brewers, the winemakers, restaurateurs, hotels, yep. uh, others, and in the middle of a pandemic. Everyone says that, and we know the the numbers, of course, that big business generates um, an awful, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs every year, but that small business is kind of the core. If you don't have those small shops on the main streets of towns and cities, um, you're not keeping people 
in their communities and, and able to shop. Is there a way to really make that, uh, you know, to distinguish, to make sure that that still exists in our recovery, that small business, because they are the local job creators. Yeah, and, and they are also 98% of the businesses in Canada. Yeah. And as a consequence, we need to be very focused there. They're Canada's largest employer as well. Um, and the, the simple test for whether or not you're in a recession, you know, you're in a recession when the lights on Main Street go dark. You know, you're recovering when they uh, open for business signs, come back out again. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what we see, not just in Canada, but in China and Italy and, and other countries as well, has been that small business has been particularly hard hit. Why? Well, cash reserves that larger businesses had. Uh, in addition to that, they didn't have the planning capacity to have business continuity plans that larger businesses would have. And then third, because uh, they're, they're riskier places for lenders uh -huh. to invest. So they pull back. And this means then that, that small business does require uh, special attention. Um, all business does, obviously, right. but, but small business has special needs that we have to that we have to uh, recognize. And, and this is again why some of the measures that were were taken uh, were so perverse. Uh, where you have a community where there's virtually no infection, and the businesses find themselves on lockdown because yeah. in, in larger cities. Um, the, the infection is broken out. It's very hard to explain to people why they're being put out of business because of something that happens somewhere else as opposed to, to their community. That's an instance where there should have been greater flexibility. And, uh, you know, again, you cited earlier the issue of small stores versus the big box stores. Um, I would argue that uh, from a public health point of view, it would have been better to have people dispersed into smaller stores with lower density than yeah. funneled into big stores. So you and I are sitting here having this conversation, which seems perfectly logical and reasonable. And and the young woman at the coffee shop wants a test. And we're all having hundreds of these conversations with relatives on Zoom. And there seems to be kind of a consensus about it. You spent a good chunk of your life in politics. Let me remind people that I think you were the youngest ever elected MP at the age of 22. Second youngest. Sean O'Sullivan was, was 20. Oh, okay. Uh, and, 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 and then the youngest, yeah, and then the second uh, or the the youngest to be appointed to a cabinet job. So, I mean, you know from politics, you also come from a manufacturing family. So you're kind of looking at this uh, from both sides now. Why can't the politicians, the political class, the leaders understand this? It seems so common sense. So that's it's the toughest question. I I think the best the best answer I can give is that folks are making it up as they go along. Yeah. Um, none of us have lived through something like this before. We're literally designing the aircraft and building it as we're flying in it, and so we have to cut a good deal of slack to to governments. Uh, I am not critical for of the federal government for redesigning its support program several times uh, mm -hmm. because it. You know, it's simply a, a program that in the past would have taken weeks or months to design. They were doing it in a matter of, of, of days. Yeah. Um, but but the key element here is that we have to you have to have a strategy, and you have to share that strategy with Canadians. One of the criticisms and, and that I would address to governments at all levels 
is a lack of candor with Canadians mm-hmm. about uh, initially about the models that they had, the belief that Canadians couldn't cope with with the news. Well, Canadians have demonstrated that they can if you're honest and transparent with them. The, the second is the lack of a strategy, of any coherent strategy. And we talked about it earlier on testing, yeah. uh, but there's so many other areas where, where we could uh, discuss it as well. Um, people have to know what the plan is so that they know how to organize their own lives. Third, the communications here. Uh, what we've been told for the past year is a, a variant on stay at home or you'll die. Um, that's very different from a message which was, this is very serious. We have an invisible killer in our midst that we mm-hmm. have to take very seriously. But if we all do our part, government, business, individuals alike, then we can get our lives back and reopen our economy sooner. Um, the message that we that 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 we have been giving our citizens is that we're all powerless victims. Yeah, that's exactly we to, right. Yep. We have to have a message of empowerment to say there are things that every one of us can and should do that will allow us to save lives and to get our lives back. And if we work together, uh, we can we can defeat this disease. Do you think we will go through this process of repatriating the industries where you can produce PPE and produce vaccines and produce, or is that just talk right now? I think we'll certainly be doing some of that. And and that's a trend we'll be seeing around the world. Um, I believe that when this is over, we need to have a Royal Commission mm-hmm. completely at arm's length to government, uh, not to assign blame, uh, but to, to look figure for, out what the hell went wrong. Yeah. What are the lessons learned? Yeah. Uh, where do we go from here? Um, I have two. I have two fears. The first is that we roll over and go back to sleep as we did after mm-hmm. SARS. Phew, that was awful. Thank yeah. heaven we dodged the bullet. Now we can get on with our lives. And uh, we had all sorts of warning from SARS that there were going to be future pandemics and internal reports that were done by government talking about what needed to be done to prepare for those. And they didn't get acted on. The other fear that I have is that we become the general preparing for the last war, that we are extremely well prepared for COVID again, but we're not prepared for a much more virulent and dangerous uh, pandemic or for a climate disaster or for a terrorist act. Um, we need to to use this as a wake-up call for us to, to look at how well prepared are we for, for crises. What are the organizational mechanisms that we have in place? Um, one of the fundamental questions, Pam, and it comes back to your question that, that governments have to ask themselves, if the first responsibility um, of any government is to prepare for the security, to protect the security of its citizens, what constitutes national security at this point? Uh, is it simply uh, ensuring that the Russians don't invade? Or do we have to look at all sorts of other external and internal threats to Canada that that could cost people their lives or destroy our economy. Um, and that could be a climate disaster. It could be a pandemic, could be terrorism. Um, we have to ask ourselves, because we've, we've learned a very costly lesson from COVID protectionism um, yeah. with, and, you know, Donald Trump <laughs> taught us that our best friend, the United States couldn't be counted on in times of crisis to be able to have our back with uh, N95 masks. Right. 
and uh, we wouldn't put that. any money into the system and all of that. Yeah, right? We're seeing that in the, yep. in, the uh, in, in Europe with the talk about uh, yep. restrictions on export of of uh, COVID vaccines. Um, so we're, we need to ask ourselves: the, the Defense Department uh, looks at what they refer to as the defense industrial base. If Canada were involved in a conflict. What is it that we need to be able to produce here at home to provide for our security? We need to look at a pandemic industrial base or at a at a crisis industrial base, if you like, and ask ourselves, what are the minimum requirements that we have to have in Canada that to uh, supply ourselves? Now, a, a caution on that. Uh, our, ins- our instinct is to go down the list of everything that we needed for COVID and say, Never again will we allow right. hand sanitizers to be uh, to be something we import from abroad. We'll do it all domestically. It may very well be that in some areas it makes sense if if we can have supply chains that work well, that it makes eminent sense for us to rely on international partners. Um, but in other areas that we have to maintain a domestic uh, capacity that ensures that that you're never completely stuck. Um, you know, clearly now one of those is vaccines. Yeah. Um, the the government is uh, is revamping the National Research Council facility, <laughs> but the soonest, if this is a government program we're talking about, uh, I know. The soonest that it comes on stream, if everything goes according to plan, is December, and that means that that uh, we should have had Canadians vaccinated to the point of herd uh, immunity before By then. Yeah. Then. This will still be helpful for booster vaccines if this is something like flu that you need it each year, and it, it will be helpful for for future uh, pandemics as well. Um, but but we need to ask ourselves: How did we get to this stage? Yeah. How did this happen? Uh, what where did our our pharmaceutical industry in Canada go? And I think the and answer why? is yeah. we have been focused for the last thirty or forty years on price of pharmaceuticals rather than on ensuring supply. And as a consequence, Canadians are, are paying the price today, uh, both economically, socially, and, and in terms of public health. And a lot of that regulatory stranglehold that you talk about is the reason they'll tell you they went somewhere else. Yeah, it's, you know, it capital crosses borders mm-hmm. like light through glass. <laughs> and uh, it goes where it's wanted. Yeah. Um, and at the end of exactly. the day, government, you know, government can't simply print money. They have to get money that comes from activity in the private sector. To do that, you need investment. To attract investment, you have to have a climate where somebody says, this is a country that actually wants me. Yeah. And if the message is you are not wanted, um, and, and some of the messaging, you know, again, I do not want to stray into partisan politics, but some of the messaging we've heard in Parliament has been essentially punitive. We've mm-hmm. got to bring in new taxes to attack uh, yep. Yep. classes of businesses or individuals. Um, investors will go where they're wanted. Perrin Beatty, thank you so much for this. I, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to you another day because I think we really have to take a look at the issue of globalization. But you know what? We're going to wait on that one. Uh, and I really appreciate your walking us through this. And we do have to get this recovery underway and all of us need to participate.
by keeping us working together, we can do yeah, it. Doing it. Thanks so much. Perrin Beatty, the president, CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, 200,000 members in this country. So um, he has a lot of weight behind that voice. Thanks a lot. Talk soon. Thanks, Pam. That's this edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen.